Hi everyone, this is Steve Hargadon, and it's Tuesday, September 29th, and welcome to Conversations.net, where we explore the impact of the internet on culture and society. We're sort of co-hosting with futureofeducation.com, which is my education interview series, because so much of what John C. Brown has to talk about relates to education. He is our guest. He's affectionately known as JSB. I called you John in the last interview. Do you prefer JSB or John? Well, if you want me to respond, probably JSB is safer. <laughs> okay, okay, I'll say JSB. So we want to welcome JSB. Thanks so much for being here. Also with us is Teresa Betha, our Conversations.net intern slash co-host. How are you, Teresa? Not hearing any sound from Teresa. Uh, hello. Hi. Can you hear me now? I can hear you. All right. So okay. Hi. Hello, Mr. JSB. Mr. JSB. Hi, greetings. <laughs> thought I'd change it up a little bit. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> First. <laughs> so Teresa will be taking note of any questions you ask in the chat. So the chat tends to fly by fairly quickly. And if you want to ask your question in the chat, she's going to try and record those. And, and we'll call on her every so often and see if there's something that's come up. Or Teresa, feel free to raise your hand. Um, you are in Illuminate, and I now work for Illuminate, so I get to do a little bit of an Illuminate plug. But we have a free social network for educators called Learn Central that combines uh, traditional social network tools with the sort of live interaction you have in this kind of a session uh, for free. So if you haven't been to LearnCentral.org, please come. It's my um, it's my passionate project right now. Uh, I'm sort of the tom of my space for Learn Central, and come and see the kind of fun things that we think we're doing for education there. Uh, coming up on the interview series uh, tomorrow, Howard Rheingold, Joyce Valenza, uh, Francis Harris. We have a great show on librarians. This is sort of a follow-up to shows that both Howard and Joyce have done in the past. That should be a lot of fun. Uh, Thursday, Alan Weiss, who started ThinkQuest, is going to be on talking about uh, businesses that um, participate authentically in education. Next week, Dennis Litke, a session on uh, learning games. Later in the month, SRI will talk to us about Tapped In and what they've learned about educational communities and social networking. In November, a little bit of fun with Tim Westergren from Pandora, Henry Jenkins, um, Howerson and Collins talking about rethinking education in the age of technology, Larry Cuban from Stanford, Dan Willingham on why students don't like school. Bob Compton on the two on the on the videos two million minutes and his new follow-up video. Curtis Bonk on the world is open and still to be scheduled, but committed. Our Clay Shirky, Beck Searles, Tim Magner, David Thornburg, and James Paul Gee. So a lot of fun, so please stay tuned. If this is your first time in Illuminate, then I want to make sure you have a bit of an understanding of how it works. So you can see the participants in the participant window, and you can actually send a chat to the whole group or to individual participants in the chat box, which is right below. If you do send a chat to another individual, be aware that uh, JSB, Teresa, and I actually see those chats. They're not fully private. And there are other ways for you to interact. You, some of you saw that little hand with the green up arrow earlier. And if you click on that and raise your hand, we'll know you want to ask a question. This is an interactive session, so please feel free to raise your hand. Leave a, leave a message in the chat or raise your hand, and we'll try and um, make sure that you get a chance to participate. Next to that hand-raising icon are a smiley face, a clapping hand, a confused look, and a thumbs down. 
Uh, we don't anticipate anybody doing thumbs down tonight, but there are ways of you uh, letting us know how you feel. There's a green check and a red X. If we should ask a question. That's a green check for yes and a red X for no. Um, you also have this big white board area here, which we're not going to use much tonight, but we do want to give you a chance to use it right now. And to the left of that, you'll see some different uh, little icons that let you do different things. And we want you to click on the wand. That's the little stick with the red dot at the end. And let us know where you're listening from by clicking on the map. We have a little bit of an international group tonight, I kind of noticed from the shout outs. Well, wherever you are, we're glad you're here. In Australia, did you get any tsunami wave there? Do you know? I guess that's good. I don't think they were expecting much in Hawaii either. I bet the surface up. Well, so our guest tonight is John C.D. Brown, JSB. Thanks so much for being here again. My pleasure. So would you uh, give a little introduction to yourself? When, when someone asks who you are and what you do, what do you say? Well, I used to tell my current title is Chief of Confusion, and that explains everything. <laughs> uh, you know, the, I think the important part is I used to be the you know the head of Xerox Park and the co-founder of the Institute for Research on Learning, but I stepped down from that um, you know almost eight years ago now, and now I'm basically out on my own I'm doing. I have a kind of research center called um, the Center for the Edge with John Hagel, and I tend to do a fair amount of writing articles, books, several startups, and at the MacArthur Foundation trustee. The, probably the trustee there most responsible for pushing their whole digital learning media strategy. I'm going to click on our web tour here and put your website up so people can see where to go if they want to get more information. Also, um, put that link in the chat. You can look at it later. A lot of good videos and papers there. Uh, fun site for me to, to watch or to look at. I really enjoy going through that material. I uh, was very proud for several months when my name actually appeared on your home page because of a previous interview. <laughs> so um, we talk, it was, it's almost been two years since we talked. And it was really fun for me to listen to portions of that interview again. How do you think things have changed in the last couple of years? Are we seeing things any differently than we did before? Are there are, are things, there are still things we're not seeing? How have your impressions of what's taking place with the Internet changed? Well, I think there have been a set of um, changes from just two years ago. You know, as Gibson said, um, the future, I forget how he actually said it, but the future is, um, is very predictable. It's just unevenly spread around, so you just have to find the right places to look. That's not an exact quote. But, I think he said the future is already here. Uh, it's just not now, distributed evenly. Evenly. That's, uh, <laughs> that sounds a bit more poetic than my <laughs> brain damaged way of remembering it. But <laughs> yeah. The, you know, I thought that two years ago, a lot of these ideas of digital media was out of the cutting edge, seemed like it was a bit far-fetched. Um, and people still believed all, a great deal in schools as being the salvation of 
what we have to think about in the 21st century. And everybody was super paranoid about what China and India and Singapore is going to do to us. Um, and I think now there's a you know, slightly more balanced sense that you find, first of all, more interest in after-school programs than we ever did two years ago. It may be a balance of looking at informal learning versus uh, formal learning. You can now actually bring up the idea that students might assess their own learning as a powerful tool for them to learn about themselves, whereas even two years ago that was considered a bit bizarre. Um, and I think that there's a sense now that we can engage in so much more serious work connecting our passions to doing things. So you know, two or three years ago, I kind of made this very simple observation that in some ways, the 20th century, you kind of defined who you were by um, what you wore, what you owned, uh, how much money you had. And the 21st century, now more and more, it was a bit premature you know, two, three, four years ago, you tend to define who you are to a large extent by what have you created and shared and that other people actually built on. So it's not just a question of what you have created, but it's a question of what's been picked up and other people have added to it. And so, you know, as you hear from Henry um, you know, Jenkins a lot, it's not that you write a blog, it's the fact that other people then do trackbacks, build on what you've said, and so on and so forth. So you start to you know, build an interpretive community and the co-creation of interpretation and, and creation. And I think that that whole sense now is really caught on. Two, three, or four years ago, that was again considered quite bizarre. And there's a wonderful, wonderful article by um, Andrew Sullivan in the Atlantic Monthly called "Why Do I Blog?" And that gives one of the most nuanced and uh, kind of stories about why he blogs and what it has meant for him and how this has become a fundamentally new learning milieu for him. And how now he can kind of put himself out on the edge, um, test ideas, but kind of uh, be provisionally correct, and then honestly be able to hear the feedback. And through this type of interaction, he actually starts to dramatically change some of his points of view. So it's very hard to change a point of view today. Uh, but I think that we're getting new ways, new practices around social media. The media is not new. The practices are emerging that actually connect to others and self in a way that you start to transform your own ideas in a much more profound way than I've ever seen before. So I have a brother who teaches at the uh, University of California, Davis, as it turns out. And uh, he wrote a book called um, How Breakthroughs Happen. And he's been working on a new book. And one of the complaints he has is that he doesn't feel as though the higher ed academic environment really understands the, the kind of building on and the helping uh, that, that you've identified there as being so powerful. But it's still very much, you know, he needs to be worried about his own ability to publish or perish. Yeah, and he has a lot to worry about because the academy is one of the slowest, uh, most backward institutions in beginning to understand complete new genres of participation 
and new genres to actually have an impact on the world. Um, so you'll find me a school that will actually uh, look at your blogs as part of your tenure case. And I'll find you a very, very unusual school because today that's not done anymore. I mean, not, not anymore. I mean, it's not done. Um, and it's going to have to be because, in fact, the ways we contribute to the social good is not just through journals, not just through books, not through just teaching, not just through mentoring students, etc., but it is by actually connecting with the world at large in new ways and start to grow my own understanding and others at the same time. Um, you know, I I was really struck um, by Don by Juan Cole, that actually uh, you know is a brilliant uh, Middle Eastern kind of policy guy and, and historian. Um, you know, he <coughs> he writes very scholarly stuff that must be read maybe by a hundred people, but he writes this blog called the Informed. Um, <laughs> Is in my uh, click box, an uh, informed comment um, that is probably the single best source of understanding what's going on in the Middle East. Does he get credit for that? Well, he will now because so many people refer to that blog in the scholarly tradition. But in fact, you know, it really hit me that um, the academy was not taking that stuff seriously, but just looking at the scholarly papers. Now, if you want to get ever depressed at some point, you know, ask how many people actually have read a particular paper you've, you've written in the academy, and the answer is enough to get depressed on. Are you still there? So I think my audio lagged there a little. If I'm, if there was a pause for me, it's because my audio is catching up. And I apologize. I am. I'm sorry. Uh, there's a, you can see a little red dot next to my audio, and it means my internet connection that we talked about somehow slowed down. Hey, um, when we talked before, I don't remember you mentioning Second Life, but in the talk that I listened to today, you seemed to refer to it a couple of times. Have your perceptions of Second Life changed? Yeah, I think um, I mean the concept of virtual space is as intriguing as ever. I think Second Life uh, was the first attempt, uh, and you know it had some nice properties. I think that it had a personality when Corey was there and being the kind of the CTO that you know, captured the imagination of a lot of us. I'm not sure it's captured our imagination today. Uh, but you know, nevertheless, the ability to to have group discussions with avatars sitting next to you—I mean, there is a sense of being there with each other. Um, so yeah, I, I maybe I talk about it less. I don't use it very much myself. Now. Um, so I'm not sure I'd say it's quite as important as I used to think it was. Um, but possibly because we have so many channels of communication um, that you know that we can use that work out pretty well. We also didn't talk about. Oh, I'm sorry. That's me. Back. Am I back on? Can you hear me? Give me a clap if you can. 
So we all thank you. We also didn't talk about cell phones, and I was, uh, was sort of thinking about what's changed for me in the last two years. And it certainly feels like the cell phone as an internet device has sort of dramatically changed my day-to-day -day activities. Have you thought much about that? Um, I thought a great deal about it, but I didn't think it was particularly new. Uh, you know, my emerging in cell phones come from my work in Asia. And you know, basically, that is a cell phone culture. Uh, you know, cell phones aren't quite as sophisticated as ours, but I mean, the whole role of the mobile. And I would say, kind of the key notion here, slightly more general than cell phones, but is this sense of um, uh, learning on demand. So the sense of wherever I am, I can pull stuff down, I can join discussions, I can find things, and so on. Um, and especially if the uh, you know system kind of knows where I am, you get. You know the ability to do some moderately sophisticated um, filtering of information on the fly that way. You know I think that the cell phone is going to turn out to be uh, almost a more natural medium for the younger generation than the um, than the laptop. I think that that's why you're going to see Steve Jobs doing something very interesting in his um, iPad or whatever he will call it if it really does happen. But I think that. You know, if you really look at what you do with the iPhone, if you do what you look, what you do with the Kindle, and so on, you're beginning to find you know something that you just always expect to be there and to be able to access things with almost without thinking. And that sense of being able to have it ready at hand, a phenomenological notion, I think is what we're really talking about. And when you start to be able to reach through the interface onto the world. Uh, be it second life, probably not, but be it information in general, if I can feel like the interface has disappeared and I'm reaching through it, uh, then it's a whole different feeling. Well, already you're getting a little bit of that feeling with the iPod, uh, the ability to gesture, all this you know, starts to kind of let you have a natural you know, interaction with practically the information behind the screen, not just the screen. So one of the things that seems to be a, you know, a theme that I um, hear you saying is that the that learning is no longer really seen as a function of place or maybe even institutions, but it's um, taking place everywhere. That we're becoming much more of a learning culture. Is that a, f a fair way to frame some of what you said? Oh, you know, absolutely. And I think um, you know, as you saw on my website, uh, what I found so interesting is I think. Up until about the 80, 1980, tinkering was an incredible part of learning, informal learning and formal learning. Um, your ability to kind of work with systems, play with systems, and so on, until you got kind of a feeling how they were responding. For guys, it was very easy because we worked on automobiles, motorcycles, radios. You know, for gals, there were kind of equivalent types of ways to kind of tinker with with structures, objects um, around. Um, Around 1980, 85, whatever it was, nobody kind of noticed, but tinkering went away. Why did it go away, by and large? Because everything we were dealing with, all the artifacts that we were used to tinkering with, became cognitively impenetrable. You can't open up a watch anymore and understand it. You can't even open up the hood of a car any longer and understand how it really does work, um, and so on and so forth. And so basically, you stopped tinkering. Basically, it was things broke, you threw it away. Uh, and so you just kind of expected to take things as they were. 
which is a terrible way because you can't, you couldn't do mods, you couldn't do mashups, you couldn't do anything. Although we used to be able to do that again with physical objects, uh, electronics, so on. But you know, around the mid '90s to 2000, one of the wonderful things that social media and multimedia did is brought back tools to be able to craft structures and contexts. Uh, so you could start to make malleable things that you never even dreamed of before. And tinkering came back in. And in fact, the tinkering of the day is probably more gender neutral than it ever was. Um, and so now you can kind of play with complex systems either by yourself or collaboratively. Uh, you know, you might say kind of radically extending an open source point of you know point of view. But from that tinkering, you start to get a feeling for something. And I personally believe that that creates the foundations for being able to pick up almost anything. And so if you don't, if you can't play with a system and complex systems, you, you really don't have the, the, the semantic basis um, and the gut intuitions of what to expect. You don't understand, for example, unintended consequences, which is not something you can read about. You have to stumble into it. So if I were doing my own little mashup of the things that you've talked about and the things that Clay Shirky talks about, it seems like there's this tremendous opportunity for students to be actively involved in experimenting in real-world circumstances in trying to create or to help facilitate outcomes around areas that they're passionate about and where their education becomes much more of a um, a mentorship apprenticeship model where they're actually doing real things. Is, is, have I overstated your position there? No, I mean, you know, some of, some of you may have understated it. I mean, that's absolutely true. And that I used to use open source, um, you know, as one of the best examples of how a million people have learned uh, the practices of certain kinds of programming. Uh, through this kind of cognitive apprenticeship, distributed cognitive apprenticeship, if you, know, if you wish. I think that something else is at stake here now. And let me just kind of step back a moment. And if you think about how we thought about education for a long time, uh, there was a sense of the homo sapien, man as knower. Focusing on knowledge and, and maybe eventually even knowing, which is much more of an active thing. But then we add to that a second notion, and that is Homo faber. So we have Homo sapien, man as knower, and Homo faber, uh, man as maker. And then you get some very rich interplays between the making and knowing. Okay? And that rich interplay is what often underlies a certain kind of class of, of tinkering and so on. Um, and we kind of know what that means, I think. But I want to add a third element to make an equilateral triangle, homo sapien, homo faber, and homo ludens, L-U-D-E-N-S, um, which is man is player. And this whole notion, I think we have underestimated the role of play. And I think that if you look at play as maybe the most fundamental thing we do and we ever did, and that realizing that culture often emerges from games we play, 
uh, et cetera, et cetera. I don't want to kind of argue that out, but I mean, it's a beautiful book um, by Huzingi that really develops this thesis in a very powerful way. But what happens when you start to play, think of it as kind of like solving a riddle. You play with something, and then not until the riddle snaps into place do you really have an understanding of what the components really are about? Or it's like creating an epiphany. And if you want to ask about single shot learning, well, let me tell you, there's no one on this line or in this tele whatever uh, session that has ever forgotten an epiphany. But an epiphany is something that you've kind of played with something often in your head. You've played with poetry, with words, with images, or mechanical systems. And you're, you're kind of juggling something, and then suddenly, whammo, everything fits together. And it's, you know, my technical term, a wow-wow. <laughs> uh, and you say, by God, I never understood how that could be. And that's something that you take with you with life. And so it's a little bit more than tinkering, which tends out to be a little bit goal-directed, but also um, a little bit too constrained, as opposed to this notion of, of playing with ideas um, you know, in your head until things just come together. I mean, you can play with ideas, you can play with things outside the head as well. Um, but I think that there is uh, activity here that in the kind of the industrial age and this overstressed quote unquote knowledge age um, where everybody is trying to be an overachiever, that the power of play has been really seriously pushed aside. And I think that we really miss something because of that. So one of the bright spots for me is to watch uh, educators take advantage of the same long tail phenomenon or the, or the niche passion to develop something that they are, are passionate about. Um, the example I like to use uh, is a guy named Jim Bigley in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, whose uh, specialty is using technology to teach the Civil War. And he's developed you know, his own websites and all kinds of things around this. And his daughter's then done the same thing with Civil War sites. So is there a degree to which we need to be helping educators experience the same thing in their lives if they're going to be able to then help students do it? I mean, it's conceivable that what we're moving into is an era in which the um, educator again becomes more of an orchestrator. It may become more like a reference librarian in kind of a modern long tail world to help you find and connect uh, and to kind of coach you at times and less as a didactic authority structure. In which case, when that happens, you're really kind of setting the stage for a new kind of lifelong learning driven around productive inquiry and in terms of learning in order to be able to join, going back to Gene Lave's classic work and, and at the end to some extent, um, that, you know, that you learn in order to join, and to join a community of practice from moving from becoming a legitimate peripheral participant to a core participant. Um, and this whole process, I think, is something that may happen better outside of schools, and it may, you may start seeing libraries getting transformed 
to being able to do this kind of thing. Um, but it comes back to the comment you and I made before we started the broadcast, um, having to do with the run room schoolhouse. I mean, the run room, the one room schoolhouse, may turn out to be an extraordinarily interesting metaphor for what I would call back to the future. For the following reason, think what a teacher does in a one room schoolhouse. Basically, the teacher becomes an orchestrator, a coach, a mentor. Because uh, you're not didactically teaching, you're creating the context. And the context you're creating is for kids of uh, one year older to teach, for some of the time, kids one year younger, and vice versa. So basically, a participant in a one room schoolhouse spends half their time teaching and half their time learning. And as we all know, it's not until you come to have to teach something, you really learn it. And so they've turned a foible into a feature, turning every kid simultaneously into being a teacher and a learner. And I think that that sense, if you can pull it off with the, today's power tools and the capabilities of the long tail, et cetera, et cetera, you may just have solved the fundamental problem of lifelong learning in a rapidly changing world. So think about that a moment. In today's world, skills that you learn are apt to stay more or less current for maybe five to ten years, probably closer to five years. You know, 50 years ago, they'd stay relevant for an entire lifetime. And so you viewed the school as a place to build stocks of assets called skills that then you could deploy after you leave. And the teacher's job was to predict what those skills should be. You, of course, wouldn't understand that. And then you would absorb those skills and then go out to life to deploy them. This is a model that's really broken in a world that's completely unpredictable and rapidly changing. And so it, you know, a whole new game is afoot here. And I think that this whole notion of simultaneously teaching and learning, peer-based learning, peer-based evaluation, all these issues now are becoming so fundamental to what we have to consider as we move forward. So how do we envision that happening? Are we at a crisis point? Will we uh, have so much learning that's so functional taking place outside of schools that uh, that will so quickly transcend what's being able to be done in traditional school environments that people will just stop going to school? Well, you have, um, I don't have it in front of you right now, but, but um, you have a very interesting guy coming on um, in about three weeks from now from Providence. You know, I mean, um, let me bring up my, well, actually, that, that's passed me by, but um, um, he runs a set of schools on the side in Providence in a really, a really tough area. Dennis Lipke? Um, Scotch of the D. Dennis, Dennis, okay. Um, look at what he is really doing and how he approaches this whole game. Uh, he completely understands that these kids want to learn out in the action, and the school becomes actually about a 12-hour place 
so it's safe for kids to come and try things out and work, and then they go out and, and into local industries and do a lot of mentoring, being mentored out there. And the whole sense of you walk on his campus is not a feeling that, that you would think of as being a school. I find it very interesting because, uh, as you know, I spent a great deal of time in Singapore. I have been for 20 years now. You know, in the last three or four years, Singapore is going through a complete cultural transformation from an industrial age to a knowledge age, where the Minister of Education there decreed five years ago this mantra that when I first hit it coming into, into town that uh, that time. Um, the mantra is, teach less, learn more. And so we have to think more about contexts that enable us to get away with teaching less and learning more. And schools could become community centers, could become community libraries, and perhaps the most important thing to recognize is if you actually record what a kid does during the entire 12 hours or 16 hours of a day, they do spend a very small amount of that time in school, but look at the trajectory they go through in the ecology around them. And so if you start thinking about how do I build kind of an ecosystem that for they go, have, go onto their trajectories through this system, they become learning events. And I think you're going to find that the school itself becomes less dominant as a fundamental learning node, and trajectories through these ecosystems become more dominant. And then the question is, how do I show what I've learned? And that's going to come about by looking at portfolios of what I've done. And one of the things that surprises people the most, uh, the way we used to run Xerox Park, is that, and people are pretty stunned by this, I can say, and I was, you know, I was engaged in hiring almost everybody there for 15 to 20 years, uh, never once did I look at a transcript. It just didn't matter. Uh, what really mattered is what that kid could show me, what he or she had done, how they could discuss it, and what kinds of you know, sensibilities and tastes did they have in, in picking a problem to work on, um, and how could they discuss the ins and outs of what they built, and so on and so forth. And that's how, you know, I, I mean, that's how I've always thought credentialing should go. Um, and that's, you know, how we actually make big decisions of whether or not to hire people. Uh, so I think that, you know, even the most fundamental role of testing and credentialing is going to become less important because we're going to have portfolios that show what we've done. And yes, those portfolios be done collaboratively. They will not be single, singleton projects. But if you do these portfolios, if you do these collaborative projects um, in networks of people, you'd be stunned at how everybody kind of knows who did what. And I just kind of returned from Switzerland uh, um, over at CERN. <coughs> and they must have probably 5,000 physicists working over there. If you look at an author of a paper, there are probably 100 to 200 names, maybe even more, on a paper. And you ask, well, how do I ever get a job? Well, the answer is I can call up almost anybody on that paper and ask them, what did this person do? 
and they will be surprisingly articulate on what each of us did. This kind of a peer-based evaluation um, in terms of the contributions to the project. So it feels a little bit like there's this enormous power shift going on. If you move from transcripts to an e-portfolio, and then you maybe even move toward a conscious representation of a passion through website presence and accomplishments on the web, are we going to see, do you think, a participation gap? Are we going to see a whole new kind of set of characteristics and skills become the, the dominant uh, forms of success? Oh, I, I, I mean the participation gap that, that Henry you know, would talk about is a very serious issue. Um, what I find interesting is there's a term that um, uh, Anish, the, you know, the new CTO in the White House, um, is fond of using a, a, um, from when he was the CTO of Virginia, called hidden talent. And the catch is an awful lot of the people who are underachievers as opposed to overachievers have tremendous hidden talent. And we just haven't created the context that they care about in order to manifest and develop their talent. And that is a national crime. Because an awful lot of the real innovation lies in this kind of, let me call it the hidden talent, is turned off by the push for AP courses uh, in terms of what all the overachieving kids feel they have to do. And so I think that you're going to find um, as we shift to this new world, it may actually start to privilege people that have not been privileged before because they actually can do things. And that ability to do things is pretty important and I think we're creating more power tools than ever for that. So you know, I'm part-time at USC um, where the, the film school created this wonderful institute called Institute for Multimedia Literacy. You may want to have the head of that on at some point to, to talk to your group. The most interesting thing that hit me is the A plus students would freak out taking courses at the institute because they didn't know what the rules were for getting an A. They knew how to play the game in the overachieving paradigm. They did not know how to play the game in terms of the creative side. Uh, and they would, you know, they, they would you know, often drop out because they were so afraid because they just know, had no way to find their way in an unstructured or relatively unstructured space. And yet so much of what we're doing is moving into relatively unstructured, rapidly changing spaces. JSB, you sent me a paper on sort of deep changes taking place in business. And I'm wondering yeah. how much of this story is a, a resurgence in entrepreneurial activity? How much are we going to see that innovation and entrepreneurism are facilitated by the Internet? And what impact do you think that's going to have on traditional business? I think they have tremendous business. And uh, yeah, I do a lot of work on cloud computing. And one of the most interesting things about cloud computing is doing at this first disruptive stage. You're going to be, we're going to claim four waves of disruption, but I won't bother to, I won't bore you with taking you through all the waves. But the first wave 
has to do a lot. The first wave of disruption has to do with how innovation is changing. Because if you go out and do a startup and you go get some money, what's the first thing you have to do to get off the ground up until very recently? You have to spend a lot of that money, which is very, very expensive money the first time you get money because they take up a high percentage of your company. Um, that you, you spend that money in building an infrastructure. And then you that beautiful infrastructure that you spent you know, hundred thousand dollars on, you know, in terms of five servers and dot dot dot, um, you know, twenty servers maybe, uh, you know, three years from now is worth almost nothing. What do we do today? Is we go to the cloud, we don't own the infrastructure at all, and we just pay for what we actually use. So that's that's what get going at a fraction of the cost it used to but furthermore, when you actually get an idea that catches on, goes viral, suddenly the cloud lets you dynamically expand virtually instantly. So you have this ability to be highly elastic in terms of your ability to serve a rapidly varying um, community of users. And when something goes viral, you can run with it and not lose people. And I can tell you numerous stories of you know companies that have just been able to scale overnight from you know fifty servers to five thousand servers because you know a particular app that was really cool got posted on Facebook and and the thing went wild. So I think that you're going to see huge amounts of of ability for a lot of us to be able to start companies on almost no money. And that is a real change. So in the talk that I listened to today from you, you called it, you said that we are in, uh, it's a brewing perfect storm of opportunity. How much of it is storm and how much of it is opportunity? Um, well, I would say, uh, <laughs> quite obviously, I never separate the two. <laughs> I mean, a storm is a very exciting time, right? Uh, you know, the, the real catch is you've got to be able to find your bearings continuously and not expect things that you've done in the past to always be the things that are going to work today. And so, you know, I like to say that the biggest obstacle of innovation today is your ability to unlearn as much as your ability to learn. Because you have to be able to break out of the ruts that you're in. Because those ruts define tunnel vision, and that tunnel vision keeps you from being able to see the world afresh. So I've watched this chat fly by, and I've maybe been able to see about a tenth of the comments. Teresa, I'm guessing there have been a number of questions. Shall we? Um, you want to start reading a couple that have come through in the chat, and then those of you who would like to ask an audio question of JSB. Please feel free to raise your hand. It's the little hand icon with the green up arrow at the bottom of your participant box, and we'll let you grab the mic and ask a question. Okay, um, I can yeah, I can go ahead and ask a few of them, or I, I guess we can start with whoever just raised their hand first. Why don't you ask one, and then we'll give Jenna the okay. mic in just a minute. Okay, uh, and uh, Pedro had a couple questions, but the most recent one was um, regarding the portfolios and. Um, 
there's a lot of people outside of education that will not know how to properly assess a student's learning portfolio. When you were talking about looking at transcripts and um, I think I think what he's trying to ask is um, how, how what are some guidelines for that? How can we be teaching that? I mean, I think it's a very good question um, because in order to be able to assess what somebody knows, you have to be completely on top of what that knowledge domain is. Um, that is the classical reason why we went into assessment and credentialing. I'm not sure that's true anymore in the following sense. You know, first of all, if you look at what somebody has done, you can ask questions. And their ability to answer those questions in ways that make sense to you probably tells you more about that person than looking at a transcript. So you know, I find that you know, valuing people or evaluating people on their taste, their ability to communicate, their uh, emotional intelligence, and what kinds of collaboration skills they've really picked up are probably more important in the in the business world than whether or not they got you know A plus plus on their transcripts. So I actually find that the transcripts may be becoming increasingly misleading for the kinds of skills that most of us actually care about uh, in terms of what it really take to make breakthroughs in business. Um, and I think that um, I think we may be being misled by what we think that these transcripts actually represent. Teresa, why don't you queue up the next question? I've given Jenna the mic. Jenna, if you want to turn your microphone on, you do so down in the audio area. There's a large microphone button. There you go. There you go. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, I have so many different questions that I'm going to try to squeeze two into one question. Um, I came in a little late to this session and I heard you talking about um, um, the role of blogs in academia and the, the, the fact that they're not taken into account in tenure decisions. And that, that leads to, um, and I know that you guys are going to have um, Halverson and Alan Collins on in a few weeks, but, but their recent books uh, are, makes the argument that schools are too deeply entrenched in their structure to ever even make the smallest amount of change. Um, and they, they kind of use new media technologies for really traditional purposes and, and, and like test prep and so on. Um, and I'm sorry if you've already talked about this because, again, I came in late. But I'm wondering if you have a sense of whether the kind of the kind of the young academics and the young teachers who grew up working with blogs and things like that, if, if you think that there's a chance of them kind of changing the educational structure we have. You know, I, I mean, I think two things are going to happen. I think that uh, institutional change is not going to happen through the passion and engagement of the edge. Younger people coming in that now really understand what can be possible. And now maybe use social media to be able to bond and band it together to be able to kind of create movements. And I think that there's a lot more sophistication now in, that in terms of how do you do what I might call mobilization 2.0. How do you mobilize a movement or change in terms of how social media can actually help you do that? So I think that there is a, you know, a, a lot of opportunities going to happen. But I also think 
you know, if you go back, for example, one of the biggest changes I'm seeing right now in South Chicago uh, is the after-school program has turned out to be so successful with kids who were considered incorrigible by the teachers in the normal academic program that once they began to see these kids coming back into class and engaging, asking questions and so on, they said, wow, whatever happened? This is a kid who's only slept through class up till now. What just happened didn't just happen. It developed over like an often a two or three month you know, process that causes these kids now to be full participants and asking really interesting questions. So in a lot of ways, it's a question of how do we work on the edge and then how does the edge start to transform the core? And I think that you got to look at different ways to mobilize the edge and do it in a way that the core can begin to appreciate it. As we saw in this school system, which is probably not exactly an advanced, modern, um, progressive school system, uh, but rather teachers really did care. And when they started to see students changing, because they did care about the students, they actually started to say, well, I've got something to learn here. So I think that there are, you know, there's no bulletproof or silver bullet in this game. But I think that we have a lot more tools to express ourselves, to capture insights. Uh, and these kids were all doing uh, you know, computer music and designing electronic instruments to do that and so on and so forth. And just completely turned these kids on and they became active participants. And the rest is now history and that, that school is changing. Teresa, have you got another uh, question from the chat? I do, I do. Um, and actually, I'd like to add on to Adrian's question comment. And um, I, I found a really interesting quote the other day, and I wanted to see what you thought about it. Um, it's it's from Max Planck, and it's uh, based from his, his his quantum theory and, and Einstein, and specifically about um, the older view versus the younger view. And it, I think it's it, it really uh, it's exactly what's happening right now. A new scientific truth does not triumph by convincing its opponents and making them see the light, but rather because its opponents eventually die and a new generation grows up that is familiar with it. And I think that ties nicely into my question and also Adrian's, which is um, that you've got this huge generation and knowledge gap between whether it's, whether it's in school, your teacher and your student, or it's within a corporation between your upper management and your lower management. And it's is it is it really going to take time before these people are out? The executives are out, and the older teachers are retired, or you know how do we approach that? And uh, basically, Adrian's specific question was, um, how do you see the tinkering and play in K-12 education in schools, and the value they see in student learning actually making the difference to corporate level support? So to take these innovations on board as core business ideas to roll out across the whole organization. So it's kind of a two-part question. Right. I mean, you know, first of all, I ask Dennis when he comes on. Uh, I think you're going to find that you know, his program in Providence has found a way to uncover and unpack an incredible amount of hidden talent uh, in, the, you know, in this inner city, by the way, unbelievably drug-ridden, crack-based neighborhood. And these kids are now getting fantastic jobs. Um, you know, all around the neighborhood, I mean, all around the, 
the, um, the the industries around them, and basically um, uh, they have transformed their lives. The students and the kids have transformed their lives through this kind of a process. Uh, you know, maybe because I spend my my life in parts of the world doing this, but you know, you could just say that I have too much faith in the system. I'd like to say that I don't think we have yet taken on seriously multiple ways to morph the system. And I think that you know, screaming at somebody or you know, statements about you, know, you never talk somebody through a change in religion. Uh, one of the questions is how do you actually do, you know, for example, get a place that does reverse mentoring. I've just come from a one of the most bureaucratic organizations in the government, uh, and came out proposing that basically the top layer of that of that corporation of that institution um, actually takes seriously reverse mentoring. What can they learn from the kids that are coming in from the edge right now? And so I think that things that we can do that help us figure out how to move change and to accelerate change. Now, do I think it's simple? No. Yes, I think that you know, um, an awful lot of the people who are kind of within five or ten years of retirement say, screw it. I'm just going to cross my fingers and hope that I make it all the way through there, um, and so on. So I think that you know, there, there is some, um, this is a tough, tough game. Um, but it's not necessarily the fact that it's just people at the top that bring about change. And one of the reasons I'm interested in social media is because I've seen very serious change be brought about by a very small number of people in very clever ways of using social media. So I've given the mic to Terry Smith. Terry, I don't know if you used the microphone before, but you click on the mic button down in the audio area. Hey, go. I got it. Can you hear me okay? Yes. All right. Um, John, um, Jenna mentioned this a minute ago, and it's been in a couple other questions also. It, I come back to the idea of, of the new teachers coming in. Um, I'm, a, I'm a teacher educator myself, and what I see is that after I feel like I've armed teachers with new tools and using social media, when they hit the schools, they hit the Seymour Papert uh, idea of the school tends to take what they're bringing in and either strip it away completely or they uh, morph it into something that fits their terms. Okay, so that is that these kids come in being taught to be even more cognizant of you know how to use raw data. You know that's so important to assess their students. You know in the effort uh, to fend off AYP sanctions, so they go into this big fear situation. And uh, so many, like I'm saying, are being directed away from social media, even though they're using it in their own lives. And they walk into this this storm of stop what you're doing. What you like, they'll be told this is very important. We understand what you're saying, but we have the law, and we have to get these test scores up. And then away we go. And everything you said tonight, I completely agree with. I am just so frustrated about getting it in place and getting more people actually doing it. And you know, there are many ways to approach it. But so that's—I don't know if there's a question in there or not. But I'll just stop with that. Thanks. Well, I think there is a question. I mean, you know, uh, one obvious question is, 
you know, what am I smoking? <laughs> uh, you know, in the sense that, first of all, you guys spend much more time in the bureaucratic school systems, obviously, than I do. Um, and the curious thing is that almost everything we're doing, kind of at the MacArthur Foundation, um, is looking at how to build up the edge. So there's stuff after school programs that are in the uh, in the community. They come, you know, revising the community library. Uh, you know, I was just in the community library in downtown Chicago last week before last. Uh, you know, as soon as 3:30 happens, this 300 by 100 foot room is just filled with kids pouring in there now, working on projects because they're mentors with a lot of social media and et cetera there. And the shocking thing about it is they've been tracking the number of actual books that these kids check out. And although everything is done with digital media, uh, these kids are actually starting to check out more books than they ever have before. And so I think that from my point of view, and the whole purpose of Xerox Park relative to Xerox, is saying, you know, we've got to build up interesting alternatives on the edge, and let those really sing the praises um, that people just get knocked over their head with, with the innovations that come out. Um, and if they don't accept them, then eventually the system, the edge rolls over uh, and, and completely consumes the core. And you get much more of a kind of a creative tension developing. Um, so I mean, it, it's a, uh, you know, if you ask me, do I really think schools are going to be the dominant place of learning in 20 years? I, uh, I would say no. I, I don't think so at all. Um, but you know, I don't see them as being the dominant place of learning right now. Um. Okay, that's kind of a nice stunning way to, to wrap up JSB. Hey, I know that uh, Recon 77 uh, has been waiting to ask a question. Um, and Recon, hang on just one second. But I'm going to want to express uh, appreciation to Illuminate and to my passionate project, Learn Central, for sponsoring uh, conversations.net and futureofeducation.com. So please do visit learncentral.org. Um, and um, we'll hope to see you there. And I'm going to leave up on the screen the uh, upcoming engagements that we've got. And I'm going to put in the chat the survey for tonight's show. And I'll hope that you'll um, get, if you get a chance, you can actually fill that out. Uh, once you leave also the session, your web browser should pull up with that survey. And it really helps us if you let us know what you thought and uh, where we're going. So very quickly, Recon77, you want to grab the mic and ask your last, we'll ask this, I'll have this be the last question. Yeah, I thought the last statement was interesting um, because I tend to agree that learning's <clears throat> majority of learning's not happening in the schools, and I don't really share the have the faith in the system. But I, I guess my question was, uh, he was talking about the edge. Uh, you were talking about the edge, and I'm wondering um, of some specific examples that you have of the edge making a big difference on the core. Uh, I don't know if that's a good question, but you know, an example maybe from real life. Of the social network. Well, I, um, you know, perhaps the most dramatic example I just happen to have in my mind. I don't know why right now. Um, is you're going to find there's a Facebook group on Burma, and it's about 55,000 people now, and that Facebook group. 
managed to mobilize enough attention on what was going on, and they found some very clever ways to get cell phones and satellite dishes into Burma to get images and stories out, that the Junta felt that they had to come to the United Nations to kind of have a presence. And this is after the most powerful country, or one of the most powerful countries in the world, the U.S., failed to get any acknowledgement at all. And so I think that, you know, um, I'm going to steer away from Iran because that story is too complicated and I'm not sure we know what really had happened there with the Twitter accounts. Um, but you see things like that happening uh, that I think is pretty damn interesting. Um, you know, in my own neighborhood, we had a set of kids that had been thrown out of school, they're considered incorrigible. Um, and what we actually did is we gave them video cameras and we said if you compose an argument, a visual video argument that makes a point, we will get this played before city council. And lo and behold, you'd be surprised, all of a sudden these totally what are classified as illiterate kids managed to compose a pretty powerful visual argument. Because a lot of us think visually. We know how to tell stories. We know what stories work. And so, you know, it was kind of talking to them. Again, it was kind of uncovering kind of a hidden talent that this group actually had. And it gave them a voice. It gave them a voice in the sense that they thought, uh, and it did happen, that they would be heard. Uh, and so this changes this whole dynamic. And it's things like that that, you know, it doesn't take more than one or two events like that, but that kid becomes changed. So the idea in a world of rapid change to think that school is the fundamental place where learning happens, you know, in the 21st century, seems like about 100 years out of date. Okay, let's stop there. I'm putting up the survey again. Uh, JSB and Teresa, please don't close that window because as moderators, if you close it, it closes for everybody. I'm gonna I'm gonna clap for JSB right now and encourage you to do so. It's the little hand with the, the red. Uh, lines coming out of it down at the bottom of the participant window. As usual, just a, a sort of a stunning tour of great ideas. Thanks so much for taking the time. And thank you. Very interesting set of questions coming up and <laughs> interesting <laughs> commentary as well. Uh, all that I have a chance to, uh, to look through the window. <laughs> well, in the, for those of you who are interested, the chat log will be posted along with the actual recordings of tonight's event. Uh, thanks for coming tonight. Thanks to Illuminate. Thanks to JSB for uh, for all that you do. In addition to, to being here with us tonight, uh, please do look at his website. Uh, lots of uh, amazing material, well worth uh, looking at. And uh, we do appreciate your being here and appreciate everybody coming tonight. So thanks, JSB. Righto. Thank you. Okay. So I will leave the uh, chat uh, open for about five minutes so you can finish up any conversations. Please do fill out the survey. Uh, it will pull up as well when you close the session. And, uh, and then in about five minutes I actually have to kick everybody out of the pool for the recording to process. Thanks for coming tonight and uh, please do join us again on conversations.net and futureofeducation.com.